Hey, welcome to episode 29 of the Beerfest Brewers Roundtables. This week we have something very special for you and we'll have something the next two weeks after that as well because we're going to be focusing on African brewing. Um, it's a little bit out of our wheelhouse because we've been focusing really on, you know, just talking to European brewers and um, that. So Africa is going a little bit, little bit different, but it, it's a, turned out to be very, very interesting subject that I was interested in. And um, in conjunction with the Chicago Museum, we decided to set up this three sessions to look at basically African brewing and its influences. So what we're starting with today is a discussion on traditional African brewing styles. And we have really three experts with us. Um, we have Apiwe Nsusani Mawela um, of Tolokazi Brewery in South Africa. She's the first female black brewery owner. She's the chairperson of the Brewing Institute. She's a wealth of history and a wealth of knowledge on it, as will become apparent. We also have Jesse Flynn, who is the co-founder of Quaza, which is the first craft brewery in Rwanda. And we have Bayo Ijazan, who is the brewer in from Bature Brewery in Nigeria, and they're the first craft brewer in, in Nigeria. So they have a lot of interest in and a lot of experience in bridging that, that gap between traditional brewing and modern brewing, um, if you can phrase it that way you know, kind of that the global brewing. So it's a very interesting chat. They have a lot of information, as I said, and a lot of knowledge, and they're able to present it in a very clear and enjoyable way. So I think it's going to be a fascinating session to listen to. Um, the next couple of weeks, next week, we will have another focus. Um, we'll be looking at the, the position of craft brewing in, in Africa. And then the week after that is the session arranged by the Chicago Museum, where they'll be talking to some American brewers about the African influences on their brewing, both in the ingredients and the culture. So it's it, a uh, fascinating three weeks you're ahead of you. You can, of course, if you'd rather watch the videos, you can go to beerfest.com, B-E-O-I-R, fest, F-E-S-T, dot com, all one word. And you can see the videos there. They're, all three are available. Um, while there, of course, you can also register to take part in any of our sessions. You know, just register one time. You're going to link it and you can join in any session at any time, um, either to watch or to ask questions or to your, your comments or insights. Um, so I think it's worth it's worth the registering to do that. But anyway, back to today. Um, there's a fascinating talk, as I said, about traditional African brewing, both in the technical sense and also in the cultural positioning of where it stands so um okay now that that's out of the way let's go and talk to them let's talk beer So I have with us, we have um, Bayo Ijuzan. I'm not sure, actually, I should have checked with you how you pronounce your surname. Bayo. Bayo. Yeah. Um, okay, I should have checked that first. My apologies. So um, Bayo's with uh, Bature in yeah. Nigeria. That's, yes. I think, one of the main craft breweries in Nigeria, is it? Yes, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm right, you, like, you, you have an interest in traditional brewing, but you have also studied in Scotland. 
Italian in Scotland, yes. So that would be um, interesting. The traditional ones, yes, you're right. And um, we also have Jesse Flynn here, who's actually from Boston originally. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow or other, went to Rwanda for a project and kind of never left. Instead, she's co-founded a bre- the first craft brewery in Rwanda. <laughs> so um, an interesting couple, and we're hoping we'll be joined by a Piway in a while from Tolukazi. Um, in South Africa, she seemed to be having some sort of technical difficulties, but we're hoping she'll be able to join us in a little while. Um, so the idea is we're just going to have a discussion. We're going to just kind of talk about the the beers. We don't we're not doing it as a presentation. So anybody who has questions, comments can kind of come in and do that. And before we start, I guess we should point out it's a big topic. It, it's a big topic, big geography. So we're not going to kind of get into every single tradition and culture throughout the whole continent. We're actually not even focusing on North Africa. We're going to be kind of further south and um, hopefully with the three areas like Rwanda, Nigeria and South Africa, we get a good snapshot of you know what the traditions around each place are. Um, and I guess the other thing to point out is that you know we're also talking about time and cultures change and traditions change over time. So what's considered traditional now might not have been what was traditional 20 years ago or 100 years ago, 500 years ago. So we're going to be maybe teasing out some of how that changed as well as, you know, kind of trade routes, politics and all of that came into play. Um, and then the only other thing to, to point out is that I have no clue about any of this. The, my only knowledge of traditional brewing is what I've read from Lars Marius Garshall and the work he's done on farmhouse brewing in Nordic countries and in the Baltics. It was pretty far removed. So... Pretty much that's my frame of reference and most of my questions and my ideas will be kind of coming from trying to work out the similarities and the differences um, between those, you know, how, how that worked out. So um, mm-hmm. so I think that's pretty much our, our set for today. We're going to keep an eye out here for Piwe and hopefully she will join us soon. But um, maybe if when you start off, so where, I wonder like where, where brewing fitted into Africa. I presume it had the same kind of ceremonial and bonding role that it has in most other places that it's for you know bringing just bringing people together weddings funerals community events things like that that be accurate Bayo? yes um so that's usually what's been has been in uh, nigeria and ghana which i've uh, i've read about the ghana one but i know of course more about the uh, nigerian one it's been more for events weddings and funerals uh, i have personally witnessed um, the drinking of the uh, local traditional beer at funerals. I haven't actually seen it at at weddings, maybe because um, with the influx of the commercial breweries, people have the access to um, these other ones and find it sort of um, like the more prestigious thing. So that's used more for weddings. But it's still part of the culture that at funerals, for example, you drink the traditional beer. In Nigeria, you have more of... um, it's, It's made from sorghum, millet and sometimes um, a, a flower from cassava called gari which is a very popular um not a beverage a very popular um, meal here called gari you know so you, those are the kind of beers you find burukutu it's called in nigeria um pito it's called in ghana very similar usually you find them as I said at, at events funerals more than weddings nowadays but then it's also a drink that is made in very many places you just find people who make them in front of their houses and you just need to be passing by and you just join them in drinking it the commercial ones uh, in the sense that it's sold you know but all in small volumes nowadays right um yeah so so 
Well, actually, that was one of my questions. Like, who actually was brewing kind of traditionally? Was it, you know, what was it brewed as local individuals, or is it like a, a village brewery, or who? who so it, it usually was a, a, a kind of an individual thing. You find wives um, brewing it for their families, you know, and sort of extended families. Up up till now, you don't find men really into making of these local beers. So I, it's not it's not a thing that has really changed over time where men or women used to make it and now you find the other gender making it. It's really been women who make it up till date. I mean, I still was at a place um, this year, so it has to be within the last two months in any case, where I went to meet those who make these local beers and it's still the women making it. So it's always been the women making it, making it for very small communities, either their extended families or just a group of families that live around the same place. So even now, you find it in small communities still, but it's the women who make it for maybe 50, 60 um, households. You know, it's never something you make in um, a place and sell like 10, 50 miles away. It's usually just people who drink it around where it's been made, but it's still the women who make it. Right, Jesse's nodding there. So I'm guessing it's the same up around Rwanda. That it's, it's the same basic scene, scene I guess. Yeah, yeah, same thing in terms of women make the beer and it's same thing. Sorghum is the primary ingredient to brew with. Um, and also there's banana wine here. So there's there's also a, a kind of strong banana beer, banana wine, you know, which one it is, is a fine line. Um, and women make it and it is it's for weddings, for funerals. And then, but then also women in the villages just like make it to sell, you know, and so people can come by the, you know, their house at any point you know, when they have a batch ready and, you know, people sit around and have a drink. Um, it used to be very communal in Rwanda. It was a, um, a calabash that that the beer is served in. And then there, everybody has a straw. So there can be like eight or 10 straws coming out of it. Um, and everybody goes around that same calabash and drinks the same um, beer at the same time. Um, that that has changed. You know, people now take their own cup. Um, and especially with COVID, you know, there's no sharing of straws and beverages. Um, but yeah, same thing. Women are the brewers here. And I think also just thinking about, you know, the history of beer going way back, um, you know, beer originated in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Um, you know, we think of beer a lot of times, especially in like the craft beer world these days is like, it's a German thing or it's a, you know, something like, but it's, it's not, it was traditionally African women who brewed beer um, as the very origin story of beer. So we have African women to thank <laughs> for, you know, the beer that, that we know today and the evolution of that, um, you know, and way back it was instead of malting, because of, this is, you know, early agriculture, it was chewing of um, different grains and the enzymes in the saliva would actually do what the malting process today does or the enzymes that we add. Um, and that has evolved over time to be the whole malting process and, um, you know, the brewing that we know these days. Um, so, but yeah, in a lot of ways, it's very similar um, right. about, you know, it's at right. home and it's done by women. Right. Actually, some something there I, I had, you just mentioned and kind of occurred to me in like, if you look at Europe, you know, there's very definite line between wine drinking and beer drinking. Um, and basically mm -hmm. what I've, what I seek to and what I'll describe is that kind of further south is it was just fermented by itself. So they got lazy. They didn't, you know, it's a lot less work than making beer. Does that, is there any sort of split along that down African lines? Because I would imagine closer to the equator, you've got an awful lot more fruit that will just ferment by itself rather than say further south. 
Mr. Uh, Dio, yeah. So um, we don't have that um, uh, much of it. I, I don't know if it's probably due to the abundance of grains. So there are not so many fruits, um, beers, or wines in Nigeria. You okay. find two or three main classes: um, the local beers, um, the local spirits called ogogoro. The closest spirits I could tell to that would be gin. You know, so even in Nigeria, it's called local gin. You know, but people also, also know the name ogogoro. That's what it's called. And lastly, the palm wine. Palm wine is from the palm fruit. Uh, it really has nothing to do other than you just tap it and put it in the bottle. Then you get fermentation in a day, and in three days, it's um, the alcohol content increases. But not so much of fruit wines. I cannot tell, but I don't think I've heard about any banana wine in Nigeria, for example. And there's mm -hmm. lots of bananas and oranges, you know. But there is um, lots of burukutu, as I said, which is the ones made from sorghum, millet, and um, some cassava nowadays. So in research about this, for example, I found that in a, a clear difference between burukutu and pito, which are both made in Nigeria and Ghana, is that in, in, in both countries, burukutu usually could have an adjunct. Uh, I know ideally sorghum, millet will be called adjuncts, but because they're the primary malt here, let's take them as a base malt, but you find where people could add cassava flour, which is called gari in Nigeria, and probably in Ghana as well, people could add cassava flour to burukutu. To burukutu. So when you have burukutu, usually you have more than one grain, but in pito, you find it primarily as millet, few times as sorghum, you know? So you find one as um, the one with the adjunct, the other without the adjunct. Um, Ogogoro, as I said, is usually gotten from palm trees as well. So you get the palm wine, then you distill the palm wine. And I also find that more men do ogogoro, either because of the stronger alcohol content, also because of the uh, actual process of tapping the palm, which um, requires climbing the tree. Up till now, you don't find any uh, mechanized way of actually going up the tree to get the, the palm sap. So you still find men usually doing the ogogoro, uh, uh, finding them doing the palm wine and the ogogoro. The, um, the ogogoro is the um, distillation of the palm wine and women doing more of the burukutu and pito. That's what you find usually in Nigeria, maybe um, Benin Republic and Ghana as well. Yeah. Okay. So, but, but it's all still very much grain-based. It's not like... Grain-based, yes. All grain-based, yes. Right, so the fruit is just, like I said, it's an adjunct. Yeah, I just wondered because, like I said, you know, if, if you look at Europe, it is such a clear line where they just... Yes. No, no beer, no wine. You know, it's, it's yes. I, I'm kind of amazed that there isn't some sort of a split in Africa, but... Um, we we do have the... Like in Rwanda, there's people that do banana beer, banana wine, and that kind of you know, when you ask, is it beer? Is it wine? People are like, eh, it's the same thing. Um, and it's, it's ripe bananas that then you have to use a specific kind of grass. Through, so, the, so the bananas are harvested and usually put in um, a canoe type um, kind of empty thing that has a drain at one end. Uh, and then the gra uh, there's a grass, certain grass that's harvested and the grass is pushed into the bananas um, as a way to, uh, the, when I'm told about how it works, you know, that it's about, oh, it's to help mash it. But other people said the, there's probably a yeast in, because it's a very specific kind of grass that has to be. Um, so we're actually working with some Rwandan institutions right now to do some research to see is the yeast in the grass, is, it that, is that why that grass needs to be used in order to start that fermentation process? Um, and then depending on how long it's fermented under, you know, the conditions, the ripeness of the bananas, um, you get kind of stronger or weaker um, banana wine. Um, and then sometimes that is added into sort, like you mentioned, like using it as an adjunct, sometimes um, it can be mixed into different things. Um, 
And then also like not in Rwanda, so I can't speak from a you know, personal experience of seeing this or really hearing much about it, but thinking of like, well, honey is used a lot here as an adjunct um, in the sorghum beer. So Ichigaji is the traditional sorghum beer and they'll add honey to that. So it's not a fruit, but it's a honey additive. And then there's in Kenya, they'll, they'll do a, um, a beer that has sausage fruit, like the Kigelia Africana. There's a certain... Um, kind of long bean pod that comes off the tree that's used to brew um, a sorghum-based beer, but that adds a flavor and a yeast, and then honey will be added to that. And then if we look, you know, going up to Ethiopia, we end up with um, tej and using um, honey wine. So there's a kind of a transition, I think, of, you know, in some places what um, what grains and what fruits and different things are used. Yeah. Okay. I, I just see, I think a Piwe is just joining us. Piwe, can you um, can you hear me? We can hear you. We can't see yeah. you, but we can hear you, which is pretty yeah, good. good. Yeah, I think that's the best I can do. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so we'll leave you there if you can get the camera going. Do. Um, we, uh, we were just, so I'll just introduce it. Piwe is the first, it's the owner of Tolakazi. She's the first um, black female owned brewery. Um, she's herself um, has also been, let me check my notes. The chair of the Institute for Brewing and Distilling in South Africa and the Beer Association of South Africa and has huge knowledge on traditional brewing as well. Um, so, so we're delighted to have you. So we were just talking, um, just really getting started there, Piwe, about, you know, where brewing fit in as a part of the culture and, you know, that it was very communal. Um, but that there didn't seem to be any kind of across Africa that we saw any kind of split between wine country and brewing country like it, it's all very much brewing um is that the same down south africa there's no like what was the tradition <laughs> who brewed and where it fitted in was it all for communal events sorry <coughs> i can't be late I'm <laughs> okay we're having someone dying live on, live on stream here <laughs> uh, please excuse me we'll be famous not for good reasons but we'll be famous <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so, so i think oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. i think the i just had the problem with <coughs> logging in sorry um so yeah, so, yeah. In, in Africa, uh brewing has always been communal is i think as jesus said sorry can i be excused <laughs> 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 okay. um okay so yeah just come back so if you were brewing for an event i presume these beers they weren't kept like they were drunk within kind of a day or two of being of being ready. They'd, they'd be fermented quickly and drank quickly. Yes, um, here they are low alcohol based. Um, I haven't actually checked the alcohol content, but from just drinking it, you could tell um, probably two to three percent. They're okay. about real low alcohol based. Should be like, it's of course session, so easy to drink, you know. Uh, but what is also interesting is there's almost always a batch that is left behind to really ferment well, and that becomes a very strong one. So what people will tell you, for example, is there is this woman where I drink a strong burku to frog. She does hers um, differently. But what she's really doing differently is taking a batch outside and leaving that to ferment stronger. Um, there is no clear yeast used here, really. It's wild yeast and lactobacillus. So you, you leave it um, exposed always for 24 to 48 hours, they'll say. For you to get the regular kind of fermentation where you have the froth on top and it gets two to three percent alcohol but when someone leaves another batch of this behind for another let's say four or five days then it gets stronger alcohol so people tell you this 
Um, there's this woman down my street who does the regular one. And there's this woman in three streets away from me who does a very strong one. But really, what's the strong one is you've just left it to really ferment to become maybe five, six percent alcohol, you know. But it's open fermentation, left for wild yeast and lactobacillus. You can almost always taste the lactic, um, lactic acid fermentation. It's almost always there. Some sort of um, you know, kind of the acidic aftertaste. You can always tell that. That's, so that's where that's where it's coming from. Right, so essentially they're kind of, I suppose, lambics, like what they'd have in Belgium as lambics. Um, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. I, I, so their their sour sour beers would be. Yeah. So if, if you usually have it in the first day or second, it's very hard to pick the sourness. You can almost taste just the malt sweetness, and uh, and people tell you they take it because it's good for them to sleep. It's good for them to manage their mood, for example. But then I can almost tell, yeah, it's it's the first two days of fermentation. You have some. Kind of lactic acid fermentation, um, of course, just starting. So it also has something similar to the probiotic thing. You know, uh, they tell you it's good for my digestion, it's good for my back pain. You know, uh, it's good for my mood. You know, so I can almost tell you that that's the reason you you're just getting same thing. We're probably taking Greek yogurt at, at this point in time. You know, but then the other person who says I take the one from the other woman in five days time says yeah. This is really for the strong alcohol content and the person doesn't at this point mention the same um, advantages or doesn't say things like it's good for my for my mood or okay. for my digestion no it's now really I, i'm drinking it because um it, it's kind of uh, kind of a social thing and it's more alcoholic but 90 percent of it thereabouts will be those who take it in the first few days when it's still real low alcohol and it's easy to tell that you could just be getting all the probiotic um properties from 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 this okay so yeah, because I mean, I think of wild, you know, spontaneous fermented, and you think of very sour, and they have to be blended together to kind of take some of that sourness away. You know, you, you blend the, the kind of the new and the old and all of that. That's thing that that's the craft. But that's interesting. Yeah, that, that, that almost always happens as well because um, because of the kind of um, not really batch fermentation because also batch mashing they do here. So there's almost always like three different batches are uh, available at every point in time. So there's one still being um, cooked. There's one just um, undergoing fermentation. There's another one that, that was made three days ago. So there's always some kind of mixture here. You know, so when you speak with the women, usually they don't know about yeast. They don't know about the source of the fermentation. They don't know uh, about why the one left for five days. You know, some of them even don't have the ones left behind for five days. They only have the one they sell in two days, for example. But you can tell the fact that you make you you, you took the um, the leftover from the one that was done um, six days ago. You mixed it with the one you made today. So you are easily transferring yeast from one to the other. You know, so you cool this down. You take the yeast from the um, old one. You blend with this one, and that turns to be the one you're selling in two days time. But of course, because of the malt sweetness from the one you just made yesterday. Uh, the the sourness isn't going to be pronounced because uh, it's still just a very small batch of it that has the yeast and the bacteria and everything you know so it's only the very strong ones that you get to get that um sourness usually the first two days it's really malt sweetness you get from it okay is that the same for you with is that what you see as well that that it's the same style of beers that they have a couple of batches going at the same time or is it different down down in south africa yeah, um, I mean, when we, we okay, sorry for being late, but I'm assuming we're talking about the traditional side, nearly historic. Yeah. Okay, so uh, in South Africa, we I think it's the same throughout the continent. Um, it's it's like we brew for when the ceremonies. I mean, that's kind of like why people brew. Whether there's a new baby in the family, there's just been a death, there's been um, somebody's getting married. Um, so we'd always brew as part of any ceremony that involves ancestors. So the beer is actually 
linked is one of the things that are used um, when we communicate with the ancestors. Obviously, it also is there to entertain the people that will be coming to your ceremony to actually celebrate with you. So it is done by women. So I am wearing my duke just as a sign of respect because in our in our culture, women are the only ones who group, yeah? Um, and uh, if if you are married, you have to wear one of these. It's a sign of respect to the ancestors, to the family. Um, like when we brew, whether you are married or not, you always have to wear a long skirt. So even if let's say I'm, I, I get home wearing a, a pair of jeans, it's it's like you have to kind of quickly get something to wrap around your 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 uh, yourself. I'm sure it's the same in Nigeria. I'm, I'm that I'm positive of. <laughs> you know, you cannot you cannot touch um, the brew, um, be around the brew if you are not wearing a skirt, um, and that is just. A, a form of, of respect and i mean it's one of those things if you don't do them <laughs> um you don't want to test it <laughs> you know you don't want to test what extras are going to do you like like that's how it's supposed to be done that's how it's done and also with the brewing itself so personally um i was never into um uh, traditional brewing and i think it's the same as um any other young women and it's a problem we have i think we'll talk about it maybe tomorrow also um that the tradition is dying so like my generation and younger nobody cares we don't care about bring anymore we're all moving to the cities um so you find that um it's the old women the grandmothers who are left in the villages who are now um they're the, like the last generation that is able to brew this beer is the traditional way um because you know um the process does take about a week so if, if I'm working, like now I'm based in Johannesburg, I'm from the rural Eastern Cape. So if I have to travel home, which is going to take me like uh, to drive, it will take me a full day to drive if I was to go home now and um, and I'm working. So which means I'm probably, if there's a ceremony happening on a Saturday, I'll probably arrive Friday night and the ceremony is happening on the Saturday morning, which means I've lost the full week of brewing. And therefore, that tradition is that's how we're losing it. Um, we we not we we just cannot be serious. Um, we're working, we're busy, and and it's some something for me personally. I feel as Africans, we need to find a way of looking. How do we, you know, as we as we get modernized, as we are busy working and being living in the cities, how do we still keep in touch um, with who we are and not lose that tradition? Um, yeah. Yeah, so does actually that's raised the point there because I, I mentioned before you came on that my only knowledge of kind of traditional brewing is what I've read by Lars Marius Garshall, and he's kind of documented farmhouse brewing in Nordic countries in the Baltics. And one of the things he he kind of highlighted on it and talking to some people there is that they they they, they especially Lithuania and kind of parts of Norway, they have very traditional brewing on the farms but it's dying out because people are seeing it as old-fashioned and they're just not it's not even time it's just that they see it as old whereas they want to be modern it's the same you're seeing there is it or is it mainly the time base that, that you mentioned yeah very very much so. yeah so even um i, I know like in um South africa specifically uh even the the, the beers the, the sorghum beers that are um commercially available they're losing market share to clear beer um producers where people are seeing like your cloudy traditional sorghum beer as being um like you, you old school uh old-fashioned you are you're traditional you are too traditional you're too 
into rural. <laughs> That's what the words they use. And that um, clear beer is like the future when you drink from a glass bottle. It means you, you've made it in life. You, you're no longer uh, rural. Um, and, and obviously the big companies that are making uh, beers in glass bottles are capitalizing on that and, and, and making products that are um, a cheaper version so that to steal the market share from um, those guys. So, so they, what they're finding is their market is actually, the young ones are not into sorghum beer. You know, right. so how do you, you find it difficult to keep them interested? Um, and that is just for leisure drinking, not even when you have to. So what you find is that even when we have traditions or ceremonies, um, people just will have a sip because it's kind of you have to. But they, know, they will not sit and drink like from the color bush, like maybe like finish the whole thing. They will be like, I kind of have to because by, by tradition or by law, I kind of have to put my, my lips on this and have a sip and that way my ancestors are happy. Uh, but they will not go beyond that. Then they will then um, move on to drink uh, clear beer. Yeah, I'm not we, sure if you guys are finding the same thing in uh, Rwanda, Nigeria. Uh, speaking, I'm, I'm sure it will probably be like a West Africa thing. Probably similar. Yes, yeah, similar here. Um, I didn't drink any traditional beer until maybe three years ago. Um, I knew about it. I'd seen it being made just once. But until I made it the deliberate thing to find out about how it's made, uh, where it's made, who are those making it, and who are those drinking it. I didn't have enough information about it. However, um, after finding out about those making it, when I ask around, we find out that so many other people um, have actually had these beers and maybe even regularly have it. So it, it's um, not so commercial that um, you'll find it everywhere, not as commercial as, of course, the big breweries or even my bacteria just starting off. Sorry. But then you find you only need to ask and you find out that some people are really interested in this. Um, it could be a case where in Lagos, Nigeria, there's a population of maybe 25 million, so there's a higher chance that I'll meet somebody who's drank any of this before. Maybe that, but I think uh, it's also something that so long as the tradition is still alive, but definitely dying, so long as it's still alive, it means um, those in the local community where it's still being made have definitely had it before. I didn't grow up in any of those areas and it had to be a deliberate option for me to go find out about this. But then you find out when you get there that lots of people still know about this. Lots of people are still practicing it. But definitely, appeal, as you said, yes, uh, there could be many, but less than it was last year, less than it was 20 years ago, less than it was 50 years ago. It's it's definitely dying. Um, I, I have taken interest in it. Um, I have drank it a number of times, you know, uh, done some of my own research into it, um, exchanged information about it with with um, Kevin, Baturis uh, co-founder, and we we have that interest to keep it alive. I I know that there is a lot that has been lost, but then with the experience that we have now as uh, industrial brewers uh, using all the technology now, then there is a lot we could do. It was only when I checked into it that I found out that none of the people who make it right now know about yeast, but they find out that there is fermentation going on. They don't know about fermentation, but they know about the difference that happens from the final they went into produce to two days after. None of the people I met, for example, know about chewing, but they know, yes, they used to chew this before, and then you uh, find some fermentation going on. However, you uh, in Nigeria, in Lagos, Nigeria, I have found women who actually do malting. So they get raw, um, um, raw millet, I haven't seen it with sorghum, raw millet, and they do the actual steeping, drying, uh, they don't kill it, but they leave it out to actually sprout before they use it. So they're actually using sorghum malt, you know, or rather millet malt here, 
but they don't know anything about the malting process. They just know this is the way we make it. So if I know about the malting process, um, I know, for example, that it's definitely wild yeast and some lactic acid bacteria here. So I have the option of also replicating this in kind of a, an industrial scale. Of course, it will start with something very small. When we spoke about it in bacteria, we said something about, about like 100 liters, you know, and let's see how this goes, you know, do 100 liters of brukutu almost as traditional as possible. Find out how it comes. We we have a mandate in bacteria to use a local ingredient in every beer. So we have sorghum in all our beers. Um, it, it's almost a law in Nigeria. I think there are only three commercial beers that don't have any sorghum. So almost every Nigerian beer has sorghum in it, but we probably have a higher amount where we have at least 30% of our grain bill always has sorghum. But we now have the option of also using millet and cassava. There is a huge amount of cassava. Cassava, of course, has its own problem having some amount of cyanide and all that. But there is no reason why we won't use millet. There is no reason why we won't put the, the, the knowledge we have from commercial and um, technical brewing into these old traditions. It's dying, but yes, I'm alive to keep it alive. For me, mm. you know, um, coming, like I said earlier on, I was usually not into um, traditional brewing. You know, it's one of those things you'd see, like the old people do it, you like, whatever, to what you must. <laughs> I'm just doing me. Um, but, you know, when I when I became a, a brewer, I, when I started working for SAP, trained as a brewer, did the diploma in brewing, and um, I remember, you know, because then my dad was like, I needed to go back home and they should do um, like a Thanksgiving ceremony where you hold, do the whole, um, invite the whole village and uh, obviously uh, thank the ancestors and those alive for the blessings and, and everything else, you know, just kind of keep shining your life. So before that, I was forced to go home because it was my, it was my ceremony. It was my thing. Um, and this was like back in, 2000 and when i just started sab i'm not giving out my age now 2008 <laughs> um and, and for me, me that was the was first the time i realized i should be knowing this you know i should I, i've just i've just completed a diploma in brewing and i call myself a brewer but i have no clue what what is happening here at big home and as i sit with my mother and my aunt um telling me do this do that because for them it was it's more it's, it's passed on you you get told this is what you do why you do it no one knows they just know it has to be done that and i was sitting there and i was explaining every small process scientifically that you know actually we studied this now you're doing this <coughs> so for example measuring they would feel the water you know and it comes with experience you know when it's hot or when it's just the right temperature um you 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 they will talk about your water you boil water so everything that you touch that you're going to use for the brew you first have to wash off with boiled water and obviously that's where sterilization comes in that you cannot brew without sterilizing they tell you that if you do not use boiled water and you just use lukewarm water your brew will be off you know so so what i found very interesting is that um every single step that takes place is it's explainable in scientifically, which is that the, 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 the traditionally it hasn't been explained scientifically, except it's explained the way that it's explained. Yeah, no, that, that matches up again what I said about you know my own knowledge on kind of the farmhouse thing up north, and um, it, it came down to the same thing that they were saying like, you know, everybody follows the steps, nobody knows why, but it'd be a simple thing like um, when they're lowering the wart, 
it would be like it would have to be a certain flow, a certain thickness coming out, and nobody could explain why. And it turned out that if you didn't do it, the pipes got blocked because they were using juniper twigs to to kind of filter and things like that. And nobody knows why, but everybody just does it, and everybody maybe has something slightly different. But you know, then they brew their own beer. Um, actually, that that's something I'm going to ask. When you mentioned it, you kind of hinted at it there that some people will be known for stronger beer or for weaker beer or for whatever. Do, do, does every individual have their own kind of maybe slight take on it that they'd be known for, that they'd be known as, you know, their beer is good for this or is good for a party or is good for, you know, that, that they're known for good beer or bad beer? And is it is it kind of shameful if you're if you're known as a bad beer? Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that that that'll be shameful if you if it gets um, Brukutu or Pitorong. I don't know anybody being known for bad ones, uh, but what I definitely know is people being known for good ones. So uh, when I went to meet the first person I saw making Brukutu, I was referred to that particular person as somebody who made good Brukutu. So it means people are known for making good ones. Um, Maybe some others are known for making bad ones, but definitely people are known for making for making good ones, you know. Um, but it's interesting that people who make even the good ones don't really know so much about what they are doing, you know. But they're getting it right, just as uh, Piwe said, for example, they know about the water temperatures, you know, even though they are not measuring the temperature, you know. But you, 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 you heard the woman say, um, you know, it's too hot, you know. So just basically knows not to use water at maybe 80 degrees, for example, because she's got enzymes in her mouth, but she doesn't know she's got um, active enzymes um, because the last stage of what she did was the sprouting. And, you know, she doesn't know that, you know, but she knows to, for example, so there's no lautering phase, uh, but um, after the mash, they sort of sieve everything was in like a 200 kilogram drum, similar to the drums I get for sorghum syrup here, you know, um, sieve, um, trying to get out only the water into another drum, and then wait a while. Uh, what basically is happening is you have another sediment again and take away the clear water again into another drum until you have a very clear water. It's the same thing I do in the brewery here when I'm tra trying to do my own lautering. I recirculate for a while, do some valve off on, before I transfer to the kettle. But she doesn't know what she's doing. She only knows she needs a very clear water before she starts boiling. You know? So there is a lot of information they have and not really understanding that they have this much information. You know, uh, what they just know at the end of the day is the beer turns out right when I do it this particular way. And there are a few people who want it, yes, good, but maybe stronger. Then I leave it uh, kind of a 50 liter behind for them, but they have to come in three days time and it's stronger, you know. But they don't know that um, the reason why it has to be exposed is because you, you need uh, more wild yeast to ferment these. You need, you need the lactic acid uh, bacteria to work and all that, you know. So they know what they are doing, but they don't know why they, they are doing what they are doing. Yeah, right. that's it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, can, yeah. can I, I would like to ask a question of Vio and Piwe. So here in Rwanda, when we make sorghum beer, there's a, um, there is a, it's called the yeast, um, but it's prepared before the sorghum beer is made um, of a mixture of malted sorghum flour with bitter leaf. And it's mixed with a certain um, plant that has a kind of an antibacterial latex as part of it then that is boiled down in a clay pot until it's a hardened substance that then later on is removed. And and so when the sorghum beer is brewed, you know, on the, the day for the event or the day before the event, they'll take a couple of that pre-made yeast and put it in. Um, and the question has been whether that's a kind of a substrate that attracts particular wild yeasts um, or whether that itself has a, a yeast, like maybe this is like, 
you know, the Rwandan version of a Kvik yeast of some sort. Um, and I'm just wondering if you all like have completely wild fermentation or if there's a substrate or something that is also um, put in when you when there's traditional brewing happening. So um, from my from what I've seen, um, traditionally, you know, back in the days when we used to have like huts, you'd have like in, um, in a family, they'll have different huts. So the one hut for the kids, the one of the kitchen. So they usually used to have one that was dedicated for the beer making. So that would be the uh, a place where whenever there's beer being made, it will be brewed in that room. And obviously, if we use our modern knowledge and modern proper understanding, I would then assume that in that space, you had the wild culture. It was trapped in that room. And because over the years, um, the tradition is passed on to like from the, from the grandmother to the daughter and an aunt. So that culture of yeast would be what belongs to that family. And then that's how they were able to consistently make the same beers, good beers. They, um, we were saying earlier that there are brewers who are known in the village for being good brewers. Like they know that so-and-so's beer, no matter what happens, this come right because you always have that and i think um to to what you're asking jesse there probably is a um a culture like i know there's a few universities here in south africa who are actually now doing some research work trying to identify these strains because i mean when we do uh caviar, you know we buy from fermenters or lalamand or um some of these guys who have obviously over the years isolated and have a pure strain and and back in the days, there was there, those yeast were not there, but people were making good beers and not just beer, also distilling and doing all sorts of other fermented beverages. Which means that in Africa, we have our own um, strains of yeast that are indigenous to us that are sitting that are not yet discovered. Um, that might be the same family as all the other yeast that we know of, or might not be. You know, um, and I know there's like two universities at the moment that are doing work in that space. And I think it's it's up to our generation, the generation that's coming to to use the knowledge that we have to to not to question because I think what I found is with with like my grandmother, like when I started questioning a lot, she'd be like, You don't question tradition. I'm like, I'm not questioning, you know, how you guys have been doing it. I'm not saying it was wrong. I just need to understand it, you know. Um and it needs to be documented because this information is it's not information that you you easily come around. Um, and I think it's up to those of us now to say, how do we take what has been happening in the past and document it? And I mean, if you look at the malting, um, they used to, I mean, back in the days, they would, they would after farming, whether it was maize or sorghum, they would put it in um, this grass-made um, thing, they would soak it in rivers. And, and they knew that... Uh, you know, in the river, you don't put it in the fast-running water stream. You know, you put it on the side. You leave it there for a day or two, um, depending on where where you harvest your sorghum. Then from there, you leave it out in the to dry and open. You put it on on, on, on grass mats, um, and you they know you never allow birds to come there. You don't want insects to go, and they will let it dry and germinate. And then from there, they would um, dry it. Yeah. So can I just jump back a little step here just because something <laughs> jumped into my head? So, I mean, what, um, well, what you've mentioned, Bio, and what um, Apiwe mentioned there was about the yeast, and that will be kind of each person would have their own yeast just by default by being kind of keeping it in a room or 
or whatever. And that would give you, was there, I guess there's two questions. One is, is was stuff fermented in barrels at all? Like, because that would contain yeast as well. Or how was it all open for me? I'm just wondering how, like, where else the yeast might be kind of preserved. Yeah, so it's it's mainly um, open, um, open calabash. Uh, calabash is a, or oh, earthenware pots. I think that's the more appropriate term here, not necessarily just calabash, earthenware pots. And there's really no sterilization. Uh, could be, of course, some cleaning, you know, and maybe just try to sanitize using, uh, basically cleaning, but no sterilization. So there is definitely the keeping of cultures of yeast from one generation to another. And yes, it's done in the same place. So if you've got the um, wild yeast there, some cultures of yeast over, uh, definitely over years, you know, that's the same culture of yeast you are using there. It could also tell why you could have different flavors of, of these beers from different places, because now you, you've cultured the yeast, and this is the primary thing that ferments your beer. Uh, in a different community entirely, that's what they have as, as, as their own yeast, you know? So there's uh, the fact that you use the same tools, uh, the, the, same, the same pots, you don't necessarily sterilize, you just do some form of cleaning. So you are keeping your yeast from one generation to the other. But as I also said, what I've also found is uh, the mixing of leftover from one particular batch to another, you know? So you've got this strong fermenting one, you mix that with the um, freshly fermenting one. So you're basically just transferring um, this active yeast to this right. um, new one again. And then when this one gets to again, you do your cleaning, which is not really sterilization. So the yeast has been recycled one way or the other. And um, unfortunately, there is still the culture of um, a culture of secrecy where people, even those who have a little information, don't want to divulge the information that they have. You know, so uh, there is a culture of this is the way we do it. So even when you know what you do and you know that it has to be this particular pot, you don't um, actually tell them it's because this is the pot that could ferment it. I tried these separate pot once and it didn't work, so I had to go back to my old pot. You know, but you just yeah. keep information to yourself and just tell the generation coming after you make sure you use this particular pot for your fermentation but you don't tell them why that um so they'll lick it with something about uh, maybe something ancestral it's this uh, this, is, this is the pot the ancestors used but really it's it, it's not just that yeah it could be the pot the ancestors used but the reason is because you've got um, a very good culture of wild yeast in this particular pot and this is why we have to have it in this particular pot yeah, yeah and you throw out the ones the, the pots that made the bad beer you throw because they were bad yes, yeah, but, yes. yeah no that that was interesting because that's the same i mean it's the same thing about all yeast management i guess you know they're doing so um yeah maybe just before i move away from yeast here if anyone minds um presumably like traditions have changed like you said i mean it's all you know everything changes is there any change to that kind of tradition, like that people brew? No, I suppose. I, I suppose in your case, it's not. I'm sorry. I'm thinking out loud here before I before I have my thought formed. I was wondering, like you know, again coming back to my my little knowledge, being farmhouse brewing up up in the Nordic countries, that they would have their own yeast, but now a lot of them have switched to kind of commercial yeast, but they're doing everything else traditionally. But I suppose that's not the case there with yeast. Would there be other kind of Things I, I suppose one is like hops, you know. What do people use hops now, or what kind of ingredients so, in addition to sorghum and that? So the side, um, you know, because because we don't have um, there's very few people that still who um, continue growing, so we're able to um, keep a culture from the previous batch and use it. So what you find now, normally people start from like kind of scratch, so. There are companies that have made um, like brews yeast such as 
that you can then use. Um, even the companies that make um, uh, sorghum, so they mill it, they sell it milled uh, in packets so that you can easily use it. So they also sell like a, um, what they call a quick brew. So in the, I think they mix with um, some yeast nutrients and they add in yeast cultures and lactic acid that they, they actually make it easier for people now that you can actually um, in your townhouse, in your in the suburbs, get a small pot and quickly mix up in a day everything's fermented without having to go the full traditional way. So things are slowly changing um, and there are companies that are making these um, really, uh, right. um, I think that's speaking for, for, for our side. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Um, so sorry, Jesse, you've been kind of out of the picture there for a little while. Is that like, I, I'm guessing, you know, Again, not not fully knowing, but I'm guessing Rwanda's like a bit more rural than say, you know, Nigeria. Um, as a rule, like it doesn't have Lagos in there. Um so is it is it still much more traditional brewing there? Like you're the first brewery craft brewery. So is it still very traditional brewing there? And do they follow the same is it the same thing that they just do what they they've kind of learned without fully understanding why or yeah, it's because um, I mean, Rwanda, we have Kigali, that's a pretty um, dense capital city, but the rest of the country is very rural still and pretty densely and very uniform. Rwanda's the, I think right now, the third most densely populated country on the continent. So we have about 500 people per square kilometer. Um, and so there, it's really dense. There's a lot of people, um, but not like Lagos, where, you know, it's all in one place. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, people um there is as um as bio mentioned there's people the women uh, malt sorghum here and so same thing like he said they steep it for a few days it germinates um gets dried and then gets milled and used in making sorghum beer um the other the and we do have a bittering agent here so um vernonia is used it's a it's called bitter leaf um and so uh vernonia is actually used to add some bittering agent to the beer um, and there's a couple of other plants that other people know that like they're like oh my grandma used something um you know and so trying to kind of capture that with people and say like before that completely gets lost how do we find out what was used and how it was used and so that it can it can remain um, and so a lot of the brewing like when we do international women's day brews and such for example we try to get multiple generations of rwandan women to come and brew together um, and you know the younger woman being like i know that there is ichigaja i just have no idea how to make it and then you know getting kind of shown the process um, through women who and and at home they'll brew kind of uh, multi-generationally so like the grandma might be making the yeast because the yeast making process that I was mentioning takes about four days. Um, and so, you know, like you all were mentioning this, like usually the women kind of of middle age are out, you know, doing other jobs. So kind of the grandmas will be making the stuff that takes a long time at home and then they'll all come together around making a brew the day of. Um, so there's, there's all different kind of approaches and, you know, but um, I would say Ichigaji and the banana wine are the most commonly drunk thing. Um, and then we do have two big commercial, like industrial breweries here. So a Heineken and Skoll. Um, and that's what um, I think there's been some discussion about like the, the kind of cultural thing, like the young kids are like, I want to be cool. And I want to drink from like the Heineken bottle. Um, and how do you find, how do you start to find that balance in between 
we, we brew beer, we're using the traditional malted sorghum, but we then do a kind of, you know, brewing process as you would with malted barley to come out with a clear sorghum-based beer. And when young Rwandans first take it, they, they take the glass and they sip and they always kind of go, what are you giving me? Because this smells like my gram- my grandma's and like, you're about to trick me with a sour kind of beer, but then they look at it and they're like, but it doesn't look like my grandma's beer. And then when they take a sip and they're like, they're like oh, it tastes different, but... And they're like, but now I have a little bit of nostalgia for like going to visit my grandma, but it tastes like something, you know, different. And, you know, how do, how do we find more of this? So, um, you know, how do you hybridize, you know, like, um, at least in my situation, obviously I'm not Rwandan, you know, so um, how do I make sure that I honor what is here that, you know, we're helping to, to kind of talk about and, you know, bring people around without using it, you know, and without kind of devaluing it in that way. Um, and so it's it's a fascinating process of, of seeing how the traditional meets the modern as as it changes and as it you know people are like it's getting lost what do we do about it um, so how do you how do you start to bring that back into everyday conversation around where those two things meet and 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 come together to create new beers yeah I think that like I think that whole traditional thing like I said again. I'm going to just keep bringing it back to the only thing I know, which is kind of up around Lithuania and that where they, they preserved all of this, but it's slowly doesn't have, you know, it's losing some of the interest as well, but they're trying to, they're trying to do the same thing that, you know, get, get back interest in it. Um, but you do see, I think there's just slowly a little bit of that coming back, at least up there, you know, because if you look, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, say Lambics didn't, you know, they were on their way out in Belgium and now they're, the trendiest beers in the world like and they're they're produced exactly the same way it seems you know so there, there, there would seem to be kind of hope that if you can yeah just bring that back you you can kind of you can make it popular again um, actually talking about sorghum there because i have no clue what does a sorghum beer actually taste like it, it tastes uh, good i haven't drunk a um like a hundred percent sorghum beer before so it's all been um Adjuncts for me, but yeah, I, Jesse, I think you, you know better about this. <laughs> I mean, well, we we brew like the the homemade, like you had mentioned with the whole, with the the ichigaji that's made at home. It is it's very opaque and very sour. Um, and so I've made a one hundred percent sorghum beer that um, that came out very sour. And it was interesting because people who really like sour beers were like, "Can you can you give me more of that?" Um, but other people said it was way too sour. Um, and so we actually modified our mash um, to be able to, so if you mash at different temperatures and for different lengths of time, removes that sourness from the mash. Um, and so we, now we make kind of, uh, our most popular beer by far is a honey blonde ale um, that's made, that we make it with 80 to 90% sorghum. Um, and it's, you know, and when people sip it, you know, like Rwandans who are very familiar with Ichigaje, they can detect it in the nose um, when they first smell it. But they're like, what's, what's different? And then they can't, when they sip it, they're like, I can't taste it. It's, you know, but it's, I would say it's smoother. It's lighter. Um, it's much lighter than barley. So we, that's the reason we add still 10 to 20% barley at this point in time, I'm hoping to kind of phase out, um, is more to get mouthfeel and body to the beer because sorghum itself is very light. Um, and we are working with Yakima Chief Hops on developing a hops um, 
uh, hops profile, it matches really well with sorghum. Um, and so it has extra oils, it has different profiles to it to complement. So actually, a piwe um, was part of that original creation. And so it was great working with Yakima Chief being like, this is what happens when you brew sorghum. Um, how do we how do we bring the body and things that people are really interested in to a traditional ingredient so that it's more of appeal um, to a wider audience? Um, but overall, I'd say it's it's just it's lighter, um, it's a little sweeter, and it can be sour. Depend, you can go all the way into you know fruited sours, um, depending on the mash technique that you use for it. So it's a really versatile grain, which is I find lovely. Um, and our by far our most popular beers are are our sorghum-based beers over anything that we make, you know, with barley or kind of following other European style beers. Yeah, so actually, I think from. From sorry, Brian, sorry, from my side. My side. Um, so in, in South Africa specifically, we we made up of different tribes. I think we are just over nine, ten different tribes. Um, so what you find is that uh, how it's made in one tribe is different from from the next. So I'm from I'm the Kosa. So in in the Kosa people, that we make it differently from to say the Zulu people. But then even within my own tribe, the Tosa people, because we also have different preferences on food on many different things, like how how it's made like by my family will be different from let's say someone else in the same village in the in the next village in the same town. So it's the taste um differs a lot. So interestingly when um um the company one of the big companies Chibuku had different plants in the country and they were making uh, the Sokambia commercially. So one plant uh, made it different to the next plant based on where it was located. So they find that people in a certain area preferred thicker, uh, maybe in another area they preferred thinner, in one area they preferred um, slightly more sour than the next. So they actually, when they measure the titratable acidity, the levels of, of your TA levels would differ based on uh, who, your who your target market is in that area. And then you find some people prefer it fresh. So they would normally give it like a five-day shelf life. So there's people that prefer it fresh from the brewery. And then there's people that prefer it like three days after it is left. There's people that prefer it five days after because after because it's, it's a it's a they sell it as a as an active fermenting product. So you find that um, there's people that want it with the yeast in there, there's people that want it actively fermenting, there's people that want it with all the yeast dead. And um, the one that mouthful that comes with the yeast. So it's a very, um, in the dynamics in terms of the flavor profile is, is actually quite interesting. I, I tr we, there's actually uh, someone that I was working with where we started to, to kind of put um, the profiles into like a BJCP style kind of guide where you've got your aroma, appearance, flavor, and started putting together some tasting notes. But we realized that actually it's so open ended that. You know, it makes it it makes it very difficult. Even like when I when I host, because um, I do have competitions um, where I get people to brew, um, and then we get to taste their products. So even then, the judges, the first question they ask you is like, okay, your name, and then you have to say your tribe, where you're from, because then and then also, what were you trying to make? Like, what do you normally make it like? So that when the judges judge, they don't judge it as a blank and a blank. So they say, okay, fine. Uh, a pro who prefers your, your, your beer to be 
um, more sour. So when they judge you, they don't compare you to someone who likes it less sour because then that obviously is not playing level field because you, it's not a it's not an it's not a fault. But what we look for when we do the judging is is your your sourness. Is it lactic acid sour or is it acetic acid? Because the minute it's acetic acid, then obviously you've had a contamination. Um, then you've got more vinegar. It's 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 and also your your sour notes. Is it is it a smooth sour? You know, uh, like similar with sour beer, is it not a pungent sour that just kind of sticks at the at your tongue? Is it something that is um, easy drinking even within within those sour notes? So it's a very interesting um, <laughs> dynamic flavors. Right. Um, sorry, I'm going to jump back because I should probably check on this before. As part of the process, so let, let me just understand kind of traditionally again. You're back into basically open fermentation with wild yeast. How was traditionally is the is the mash heated? Was it is it boiled? Is it raw? Is it unboiled? So outside, the, we would do the fire outside uh, in a pot, um, and my mother would tell you, make sure you stir that thing. You don't want pen on. Think similar. We want to have a, a rolling boil. We don't want to pen on because obviously then you start having your smoked um, burnt flavors, which obviously will translate to give you beer uh, burnt. Um, but it is a so like you've got the souring. So for example, with the souring stage, depending on how sour you want it, so you might do a um, leave it to sour for a day. Some people leave it to sour for two days. So determine your your final um, taste profile that you're looking for, and then you do the boiling and cool it down. Then some people still do like natural fermentation. So I've done both where I just like let it in my twenty liter. Yeah, in Johannesburg, let it ferment and it does ferment. So I I, I think even the, the sorghum malt when they make it, you know, because they don't I've been to their plants, they they're not as like they're not a sterile environment, anything. So I do think that even from obviously I haven't done all the scientific work to find out how much uh, yeast is in there, but I think they do allow yeast to to be present. Um, which helps. It just means if you allow it to naturally ferment, it might take a day longer versus if you add a pack of yeast um, or you have a starter culture that you prepare, therefore then obviously like normal like normal clear beer. If you have yeast, depending on how much you have, your, your fermentation can either go faster or a bit slower. Okay. Yeah, no, the, the reason I came up with it, I was asking was because Jesse had mentioned this before. Um, she mentioned there about a thin mouthfeel and that Again, coming back to unboiled ones have a lot more protein. They have all the protein in them, which give them a, you know, a high, high rich mouthfeel. And that's what they do up in, again, I'm bringing up Lithuania and um, some of the Nordic countries. And they do these raw ales. And so I was wondering if, if that's a tradition to not boil the water, if it's always boiled. And the other reason I'm asking is as well is because some of the places in Lithuania that where they still do it traditionally, they used to, um, as I understand this now, is that, in the past, they wouldn't have had a lot of metal kettles, so they'd be trying to use, you know, hot stones to, to heat it yeah. up, and it mightn't actually reach boiling temperature. So I wonder is oh, that. Oh yeah, we do, and I think the other reason why we boil also is because we use uh, sorghum and millet maize, which have a high gel gelatinization temperature compared to, let's say, uh, barley. So um, as part of you know the process we kind of have to boil and interestingly you know for me i was told you boil for you boil for an hour you know even though 
and it has to be an open. You don't. You must open the port. So similar to clear beer, where you're driving your your volatiles, you have to pour for the hour uh, because there's reactions that take place in there. Um, so the same thinking that you boil for an hour over the fire, but when they boil, like they 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 they, they worry about the type of wood that you use. So then obviously you must make sure that the wood that you're using will not introduce the smoked flavors onto the beer. So it's one of those things that you know, <laughs> um, it's unwritten science that 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 is written elsewhere. <laughs> you know, it, once you you understand both worlds. You know, you you able to to reason both worlds and say, oh, okay, this is why this is done this way and then this way. Um, and and for me, that makes it more interesting because it's like, you know, our 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 our, our grandmothers were so clever, hundreds and thousands of years ago, that they found out before Louis Pasteur came into the picture and identified this. They knew that there was something happening, and if I don't clean. You know, um, something else will happen, which I do not want. So for me, that's what fascinates me about the African. Yeah, no, that that's the same. Yeah, that the same. Um, it's like being a detective. You're you you've seen the thing, and you're trying to figure out why it happens that way. But I'm um, no. It, it's it's that kind of change, as you know, traditions change that we mentioned. You know that, like I said, in some places they didn't have metal kettles, so they couldn't boil. So they'd heat rocks and they'd throw it in and boil, you know, heat it up that way, or in some cases they throw it into the mash. And I'm wondering, you know, as metal, it seems to be as metal became more common, then they basically boiled because they didn't know what else. It was the same thing, but they just kind of went the next stage. Um, sorry, we've um, Oba King here. I'm going to bring on she's a question, which I think is interesting. Um, let me just see if I can bring up here. Oh, can you hear us? Yeah, we're coming up here now. So I wrote the question is, uh, is that doing is part of like education yes. to educate the people, people uh, 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 who they not they don't see this as a, uh, a big burden because of yes, it's cool to study uh, how to make a uh, Western beer, but it's like no one cares. And when our our you know the older people uh, pass on, we have not. So how can we entice? How can we invest as the people? Uh, this is very valuable. If anybody has a, a so I guess Jesse, that's what you're doing with Quasar, isn't it? Trying to bring the kind of make it a commercial traditional brewery. Uh, yeah, we're doing kind of a hybrid of, of how do we how do we tell the story of Rwandan traditional brewing in the in the vehicle of what a cool new beer is, right? You know, so how do we have a clear beer that but that uses traditional methods, and we buy our we buy our sorghum malt from you know, the, the rural mamas who are making the, the sorghum um, and how do we create that combination? Um, and, and also, you know, so through the product itself, how can there be a beer that is made with traditional ingredients um, and that people are, you know, that meets kind of a more modern taste as, you know, like the kids are kind of like, I want this, like, how does it meet, how does it meet to create that bridge of an interest? Um, and then, and hopefully through that, you know, like what what we imagine is at Quasar, we'll have nights where there's Rwandan women who come in and you know, like show how traditional brewing happens, so that that bridge can happen, you know, and that it happens in a place that we hope will create kind of a coolness factor of it's new and cool, but also you know, how do we use that as a vehicle to to connect, you know, the grandmas with the the youngest generation and training through. Um, but I think also probably a Piway has a lot to say about this in, in your training institute, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, for me, um, 
similar to BC and the guys in Rwanda, you know, it, it, it is something that's quite important to me also to, to make sure that, you know, um, we pass this on, this, we pass the knowledge on and, and modernize it. And, and, and obviously, uh, times are changing. Uh, we can't hold on to the past, but why, how can we take the past mixed with the present and make sure that in the future we exist in one form or another. It might not be the same way it was in the past, but, you know, how do we make sure that um, traditional African beer making um, continues to be? And um, and one day maybe we become the new Belgium where we people come to Africa to try our beers and travel the world just to come out and try our beers. Unfortunately, um, I, and I've read, um, like, I know Nigeria and Ghana, most of the countries, you know, government insists on people making use of local ingredients. And it's, um, I mean, even the big companies are kind of forced by law to to use some some of the local grain. In South Africa, we do not have that. Um, it's like, yeah, you use whatever you want to use. Um, and maybe for me, those are some of the things that, you know, government can also help play a role to making sure that... Um, we, we we continue using our traditional um, ingredients and um, traditional beer is obviously seen as I said earlier on as something that's more rural. So even within the politicians, because now they are living it up in in the in the cities and in their mansions, like the whole, they also don't see the need or the point of preserving uh, this unless obviously we have the traditional leaders who are. Uh, on all fronts trying to preserve the African traditions. But it's something that is very, we're moving very, very slow. Um, and I don't have the answers yet, but I'm doing the bits that I can. Do you, do you think that like the, the market for this is mainly going to be locals or like it seemed like a big tourist or do you think it'll be selling to tourists and, you know, they'll come first and they'll come for the beers or, you know, will it end up with all the tourists and all the, the Europeans and Americans loving the beers and the locals, they're just not interested. I, I, I think it's a bit of both. You know, we, if you look at the beer world, um, and especially like the Americans, obviously I haven't been there from, uh, from the outside look. Um, you guys have gone through the different beers. You've kind of gone full circle. The beers that were, the, were, were trendy back in the days and then, they got lost over years. Now you've got back, like, if you look at, for example, lager as a style. Um, in America, five, ten years ago, if you put a lager, you're like, are you crazy? Everyone is doing an IPA. Everyone is, you know. But now, what you're seeing now, lagers are back and they're coming quite back because we've, we, if you look at America, you guys have been through the whole um, yeah, milk milkshake IPAs and all the other styles that personally I don't understand why you would do there. <laughs> <laughs> But but what I'm but what I'm what I'm finding is that we might be running out of ideas. And in Africa, we currently are having some great ideas, new styles, new ways of brewing, new ingredients that uh, the world has kind of hasn't been exposed to yet. And I feel it is our time as Africans to say, you know, let's stand up and get ourselves recognized as brewers on the global brewing stage, um, and people must know that we are here, we're making all these great beers using all these local ingredients. Um, and that for me, I think, well, like there's people that travel to Germany to go try German beers. And, and it's, part, it's part of their plans. They, they travel, 
they decide to do the whole U.S. trip and go from state to state because they want to try different beers. I see that in here, yeah, where people can fly to Nigeria, um, you know, move down to Rwanda, up Nairobi, come down South Africa, or vice versa, or whatever, and just travel the African continent and and learning about our tradition, learning about you know, and they can go to the villages. I think that's something that as Africa we still have. We have the authentic. Um, as much as we've got the commercial side, you know, you can go to any village in Africa today, you find a beautiful story, you know, you, you get to see firsthand, you know, all these great things. And I think that's something that we definitely have to offer as Africans and um, we need to tell more of our stories. And I appreciate this platform uh, and hopefully Brian will see you in Africa soon. <laughs> Just know you can't walk from South Africa to Rwanda and reach out to Nigeria. Like, well, you know, I've never been to Nigeria. <laughs> we'll be expecting you. <laughs> yes, you know, I guess I'm coming to Rwanda. I'll hopefully get a trap. That's <laughs> no, but um, yeah, maybe that's a good point. Uh, we've had for an hour and 20 minutes now. So um, I, th I think maybe that's a good point. To finish because tomorrow we will talk about you know where the commercial side of maybe more commercializing this and where the the place is for commercial craft breweries in in africa and then obviously the influences like you said maybe they'll just become those are the influences that seem to be starting to get traction in in places like america maybe it'll it requires that that kind of external people to kind of validate for everybody what they actually have and make them value it it's because that's always the thing, you know, yeah, you, you don't kind of appreciate what you have until someone else, till it's gone and someone else tells you what you had. And then you, then you realize what it was, you know? Um, so I don't know. Um, I, there was a, it was a great session. Is there anything we should have covered there that, that we didn't just about the traditional techniques or ingredients or where it is in the culture that, that, that I didn't bring up or we didn't bring up? No. Um, Jesse mentioned the use of um, bitter leaf. Uh, in Rwanda, I have to say I haven't seen anyone use it for the local beers here. Uh, but a small craft brewery just starting tried it once, and the beer was good. I tried myself; it was very terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, must be getting something wrong. I hope to try it some other time. Um, it's it's very good for bittering. It has um, antiseptic um, qualities as well, so maybe not so good for aroma. But good for the uh, bacteriostatic stuff, good for bitterine, and uh, maybe that's just good enough. But I definitely got it wrong with my trial, and I'll be trying it some other time, yeah, to see if uh, Venonia uh, bitter leaf can be sort of a replacement for or maybe just even bittering hops, you know, maybe not aroma hops, maybe just bittering hops. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of those kind of, well, I suppose are called gruits, that they're being referred to as gruits now, even though that's a very specific term but that they're becoming they're coming back into fashion as well it seems um so they're, they're um, really... interesting what, one of the things that we oh, sorry go ahead and be right okay <laughs> now i was going to say that uh, interestingly in south africa we've got um a national liquor products act which is like a um government government regulation that defines uh beer and in that by law in south africa a traditional african beer must should not be bitten so we not we don't allow to add hops, um, and in the state that it must be in its active fermentation, in its active state of fermentation, um, and they also specify um, like it must be you must have used sorghum or millet or any other traditional ingredients, 
and then to call it beer or clear beer, then you must have had added hops. For bittering, you must use at least 35% malted barley. So so you, so there's like different there's certain definitions already in the country of what do you call traditional African beer and what do you call beer. I just wanted to add. Okay, so yeah, it sounds like it's biased against the traditional one. That was... Yeah. Sorry, Jesse, you were going to say something there. Oh, um, just so we are looking, starting to look at how we can combine the knowledge that's here with, you know, both kind of day to day as the mod as the market kind of demands different things and things like regulatory agencies, you know, a has been mentioning, you know, there's different countries with different regulations. So Rwanda is heavily regulated. So being able to make like you wouldn't legally be able to sell traditional homebrew Ichigaje on the market um, because of the Rwandan government regulations. So where part of what we're doing to try to bridge this world is like, so we as Kweza, as a brewery, are working with different Rwandan researchers, traditional um, cultural institutes and academies, um, ecologists, um, different and you know different people throughout um and then the police forensics lab um, of the country to be able to start to look at what are those properties of the yeasts of the different of bitter leaf of you know that that grass that people use to make um banana leaf um or banana wine and so what properties are actually in those things so that we can also have government uh, permission to be bridging the traditional world and today's world. So whether it's in yeasts or in bittering um, so that it can, you can bridge the traditional world with current regulations, modern tastes, you know, and, and create kind of a continuum rather than this is how it used to be. Um, and this is now how it is. Um, and so how can we work together to start to, to make that more of a continuum? Right. Well, maybe we can talk about some of that tomorrow. So we'll see. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see because yeah, what what is the, the actual commercial opportunity here? Because um, it seems like craft brewing in in Africa as a whole is still quite small, still quite new, and um, it's dominated. Many commercial brewing is dominated, like you said, by the big boys. So um, yeah, there would seem to be a lot of opportunity, but I'm sure there's a lot of challenges to overcome. So maybe tomorrow we can discuss that. Um, I'll just say thank you to everyone for taking part. Um, Bayo, I don't think you're back tomorrow though you're more than welcome um if you're if you've got an hour um but we will see jesse and we'll see a piwe and um we'll just be discussing yeah craft brewing as it is um you know what's the opportunities what are the challenges and um where we go from there